Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest today is Esther Balint. She's released four albums since 1998, the most recent of which has been made into a stage show in New York City. You may better recognize her for her acting work, starting as a teenager in Jim Jarmusch's first major film, Stranger Than Paradise. The song you're actually hearing right now is... Screamin' Jay Hawkins' I Put a Spell on You, which plays incessantly throughout that film. We're, of course, going to discuss Esther's songwriting work today, starting with The First Day from that new album, I Hate Memory, then Exit at 63 from her last album, Airless Midnight, 2015, and then all the way back to the song Almost Gone from her first album, Flicker, 1998. For more information, see com. You can look at the title of this episode for how to actually spell that. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I'd love if you would leave a nice rating and review to help others learn about this. And if you really like what we're doing and want to support it, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will get you my ad-free feed and my episode notes. Here we go. So you normally play a little bit of introductory music, the sort of the thing that you're famous for. And as I was looking at this, I think even though it's a songwriting podcast, we're talking about your songwriting. I feel like it has to be Screaming Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you because that's the thing that you're known for. I'm going to tell my director because we're, <laughs> we're playing with an idea in the show. I just have to tell you, this is so funny. We've done some versions of this I Hate Memory show where we haven't quite worked out how this will work yet or if it works at all. But I did have the idea to put that song into the show. Maybe at the very beginning, it's playing on a recording or the band starts playing it and I start screaming, no! <laughs> so that's what I was going to ask you is I understand from looking at your bio and things that you were playing music from a very young age that you're on street corners with your violin or, but yet you get into the public eye early in your life as an actor. And the first album is not till 1998 is not till 14 years later. Can you say a little about that balancing act between the music and the acting here? Yes. Yeah, so I do love that song and I do love that movie. Just to clarify that I, it's been evoked so many times in my life that it's like the joke. But I grew up in a theater company my parents were involved in, especially my father. So I was in theater a lot. We also made films in the theater. And then I suddenly people started noticing me in those shows and asked me to be in their movies. And then one thing led to another and I ended up in that movie. And then I did some other film work. I even did a little TV and I, but I always had music in my life in some form. I studied classical violin when I was a kid and I actually played violin on a pretty cool record that is, was produced by Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it's a rap hip hop record. That's kind of an early weird, not normal run of the mill hip hop record. It's called beat bop. And the main hip hop artist on it is this, Cat Ram LZ, who was phenomenal. He's not with us anymore. So anyway, I played violin on that. 
And I, in the theater shows of my father's theater company, it wasn't his, but he was one of the co-founders. I had a lot to do with making suggestions for music. I uh, was actually a DJ at our club when I was super young. So music was always, and we had a venue, a club where a lot of great bands played in the 80s. So music was huge in my life all the time. But yes, as you say, sort of quasi-professionally, I went into this kind of acting world, somewhat by happenstance. I actually moved out to Los Angeles, which sounds so corny and hackneyed, like I moved out there to pursue acting, but it wasn't exactly that. I moved out there because... New York was going through big changes for me. It was a sad time for me. And out there is where... Sorry, this I, is before or after the, that movie? Before this or after. is after that okay. movie. This is after. Late yeah, 80s, so sorry. Was, yeah, there was that movie. It had some success. I got an agent. I got into this more sort of normal world of trying out acting as a career. It was really out there when I was living in Los Angeles that I started hating that world more and more. That was a really exciting, great time for music. It was the 90s and there's a lot of cool stuff happening. And I just got more and more deeply into music and I studied singing for a while. And I even I thought I might be a, maybe a classical singer at some point. I don't know what was going on in my brain then. But so privately, I was getting more and more into music. And it took me being probably thoroughly disgusted with the sort of professional acting world to go, yeah, no, I need to do something for me. And that something is songwriting and music. I was always writing in my journals. Mm -hmm. I was always writing words since I was a kid. And I met this guy who was a guitarist and we started playing together. And that was my first little, very short-lived band. But yeah, that's how that happened. And then once I started doing that, it felt really real and true to me. And it felt like home. It was like, oh, well, this is, duh, this is, this is what... I've been kind of scratching at my whole life. And that really then became my number one pursuit and priority. All right. So we're going to fast forward to the present so we don't bury the lead here, the thing that you're promoting right now. And then we'll work our way a little bit backward to revisit some of that. However, the thing that we're promoting now, I Hate Memory 2022, the album slash musical. Is it a concert? Is it a narrative? Is it a performance art piece? Who knows? You had picked out the first single, the first day. Do you want to say a few words about it and we'll play it in full? Yeah. So the first day might have actually been the first song we wrote, Stu and I, for this show, which we were working on this idea together to make a show. And he really became my songwriting partner for the bulk of the songs. And then he's sort of retreated into the billion and one things that he does. But the first day is about landing in New York City. I was born in Hungary. My parents were part of this theater group, as I mentioned. We had to leave because of the communist regime, which didn't tolerate the kind of work that my father and his collaborators were doing. We lived in France and touring Western Europe for about a year and a half when I was 10. And that was an amazing adventure. But the whole time, I think there was this plan to end up in America. And the first day is a sort of metaphorical first day. It might not have been literally the first day. It might have been the second or third day. But it's a moment in time of me and my dad walking around New York City. And this is the very late 70s. So I think probably historically, we know a little bit about what a dump in what terrible shape New York City was at that time. But 
I loved it and he loved it. And this day was just a beautiful day of feeling so free and so open and so something so new and fresh and exciting and sort of artistically to my dad inspiring about all the new possibilities in New York. So this is just a kind of vignette of that day of us walking around these different neighborhoods and me being his daughter and kind of always striving for his attention, which was at times fleeting. But that day, he and I really connected. And I was so happy because he seemed happy. So in some ways, it's probably as much about me and my dad as it is about New York City, but it's both. Swirling, so 
So I feel like we should pick at the lyrics of this first. I mean, it seems like that's your whole approach is literary primarily. And then so with Stu getting involved, Mark Stewart of the Negro problem fame and solo stuff. And, I, and he's actually singing with you on this, right? He's singing. With okay, me on yeah. This. So the, the male harmony. Uh, I also saw featuring Sid Straw. So she just comes in at the end. Is that the third? Yeah. Harm? Okay. That's very cool. Uh, cameo. Was he getting involved? Just to help, you know, you've got your notebooks full of stuff and you want to actually make this into a coherent musical thing? Or was he actually working with you on lyrics? Some of the songs he was working with me on the lyrics. And there are a couple of songs that he really wrote 90% plus of the lyrics. But most of the songs, I did write the lyrics myself, this being one example. But his presence was there from the beginning And so the idea of writing it to share it with him was to me a huge part of it. So in a way, it was I look at that almost as a collaborator, even if he didn't actually write the words to this song, his presence was huge. Also, the chorus to this song came out of me just while we were sitting around and he was playing chords and I was singing and I was making up words and nothing was written yet. But for the chorus, I said, this is just a placeholder. I'm just humming. We don't know we're stupid yet. And it was, to me, just a placeholder. And he was like, that's great. And he smiled. And I was like, okay, I guess that's the chorus then. So this is the way these things happen. Yes, it's very catchy. And I was thinking about the pause in that because grammatically, we don't know yet that we're stupid. But no, it's we're stupid yet, as if yet is a modifier of stupid. And that's a different thing. Like, you're stupid yet, dot, 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 you know. (laughs) I love that. I didn't even think of that. I thought more of like rhythmically and melodically that just was a lot more fluid than the other way. But that's great. We don't know we're stupid yet. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Love it. Love it. Ellipsis is always my favorite. (laughs) 
in terms of the story here, I mean, you know, it's a good five minute plus song, a little over five minutes, but I guess it's a walk around town. So you could see as many things as you want. I mean, were you already thinking of this in terms of the theater piece at this point? I think we started this whole songwriting process with the idea that it would be kind of a theater piece. But I think it's very important to say that the songs work on their own. It's very important to me, and I think to Stu as well, as the way he works, as far as I know, is it's like there's nothing more to use a heavy-handed word sacred than the song. Like, that's it. That's the shit right there. Like, everything else is, is extra in a way when it comes down to it. So you can't have the song be throwaway or filler or just to tie two pieces of text together. No, the song is the heartbeat. I take that pretty seriously. So the album hopefully works on its own terms. The way you're talking about in terms of the collaboration, and I was hearing uh, another interview with you where you were talking about collaboration, collaborating further on actually making it into a musical beyond the writings of the individual songs. You know, it's not uncommon in a TV show, for instance, or to have multiple writers involved, especially because even if it's like a guy who came up with this whole show, you don't want necessarily, unless it's Woody Allen or, you know, one of these sort of, you don't want that person speaking through the mouth of every single character on stage. So having somebody there to be a different voice so you can actually literally talk to each other in the way, you know, in constructing dialogue of people talking to each other seems useful. I have hardly ever heard that in a musical context. Even when people are co-writing, it's not a matter of, I guess I've heard the Lennon-McCartney thing. I have to believe it's getting better. It can't get no worse. In other words, have the Lennon sort of the negative voice coming in answering the, you know, there's some sort of dialogue, but like doing that in, in a theatrical context, I don't know, seems like a good idea. The idea that there's one voice doing the different. You tell me whether Stu's contributions were to help, you know, the normal sort of co-songwriting collaboration is to have somebody else be a quality control check on your work and to throw in ideas as opposed to, I want to have a dialogue with somebody. Maybe I have Stu write the male characters or anything like, you know, I don't know. Was there anything like that or this was a more traditional? No, it wasn't like that. I think it was, we had a simpatico really early on, artistic simpatico. And I think he knew my story a little bit. He knew about the theater. He knew about that era. He knows how important that era is to how many people. And he found out very early on that I also... I'm not as comfortable as some other people are about talking about myself and about the past and getting too hung up on nostalgia. And he said, that's exactly why you're the right person to do it. So there was a simpatico there in aesthetics. So then he became a sort of somebody I trust who gets me and my story, but who also I've seen his work. And I think I get his mind a little bit. And it's just that recognition that we're from a fellow tribes in some way with very different backgrounds and life stories. But he he also spent a lot of time in Europe. So I think there's that connection that he gets that seeing America through an immigrant's eyes because he was an American in Europe for so long. And he, he lived in Germany, in Holland as a young man and has traveled a lot. So there was just a lot of simpatico. So it was like, yeah, he didn't write the different characters. It wasn't like that. Well, to zoom back to this song, so stuff like before free was a dirty word and talking about the, uh, I saw 16 flavors in a modern display. I thought I'm living in a dream. So, some sort of, you didn't realize sort of what a capitalist dump was. Is that the emergence from stupidity you're talking is sort of waking up politically or 
in a way, yes. And I just want to qualify it that, yes, I have 16 flavors of donuts when you came from Budapest was like, oh my God, this is heaven. And yes, this is also what leads to end stage capitalism that we're seeing now. But I don't want to be simple and say, oh, well, that was all just a big giant misunderstanding and it was all wrong and stupid. It's more complex than that. There was real joy in it. There was real freedom in it. It was fun to see 16 flavors of donuts. You know what I mean? I don't want to just totally undercut it. Is that part of why you were resistant to the stupid yet part? Because it just seems too blunt. I mean, you said it was a placeholder, but it also just seems like to reduce this complexity to kind of a... And I think there's something catchy about it. And Mm -hmm. now that you're saying that, you know, I worry, I don't want it to just have people walk away with, oh, well, that was all just a big total misunderstanding. No, there was a lot of misunderstanding in it. There was some stupidity and illusion and delusion in it. And there was some truth in it too. I think it's clear in the nostalgic tone of the song and the way that it ends with the new words fill the sky, but no words need to fall today. I mean, is that sort of just about walking around with your dad and not having to talk kind of, I mean, literally? Yeah, I think to me, that's just about, first of all, new words, English words, right? We're in America, first day. New words, because this whole experience is so new, like you don't even have the words, like what is the smell? What are these tall buildings? What is the stink? What is this beautiful person on a, in whatever, hot shorts on a, a roller, on roller skates? What, you don't even have words for it. But you don't have to because this is an experience. This transcends right now. You don't have to explain it. That's my feeling that it's just a feeling and it's like new and full of possibility. And that is a good place to be. So we fell in love with a dump today. That makes sense with what you're describing. The line after that is indifference the most beautiful thing. Is that the indifference of the environment or the indifference of you, the spectators? Which Thanks for picking up on that line because that's actually one I'm really happy about. That is one of those lines that says a lot that probably no one will know, but I know. It's indifference, the most beautiful thing. It just refers to where we had come from. We had come from a place that was so provincial in its bureaucratic nosiness. Everybody in everybody's business. You didn't even have the right to perform a show for 25 of your friends in an apartment because the police would knock on the door. Strangers on the street might scold your mom for not raising good children because I was picking my nose, you know, that kind of environment. And in that framing, the vastness and indifference and like, you're on your own, pal, vibe of that New York was like refreshing. All right. Shifting to the music. How involved are you in the actual production, in the actual mixing, in the decision? You know, you've got some very spare stuff, like the lead guitar lines are just... Is that you and your simplicity aesthetic, or was there a producer that was involved that was calling some of those shots with you? It's both. I actually think that that is my aesthetic, generally speaking, and I was pretty involved, and on this record, even more. I'm usually pretty involved in production, but in this record, I was more so. But 
I also think some of those really simple guitar lines can be traced back to Stu. I think he has a little bit of that aesthetic too. He comes up with some cool little lead lines that are like three notes. And then what about the structure of the background vocals, putting in the ooze where they are and the way that it builds at the end and adding Sid there? Where I mean, where did you even come up with the idea of, was she just a friend of yours that was around? Like That seems like a pretty big cameo for something that you could have just double-tracked yourself. Yeah, she actually is just a great presence and I believe in that and I and I did do the show that way as well. A lot of mm-hmm. how you cast a show for me is about people's presence. We always wanted to do harmonies with Stu. That was a thing that was working well for us when we were just crafting these songs originally. And then with Sid, it was kind of happenstance, you know, we we're on the same show together. I performed this song and I think I might have asked her, hey, do you want to sing on this song? I'll send it to you and you can just say yay or nay, but you'll be there that night. We knew each other a little bit, so it just made sense. And she said, sure. And then she loved the song and she loved singing on it. And she said, if you ever record this, I'd love to be on it. So there you go. All right. Well, and that's nice that you then at the end for the build that you take your lead away so you can have the two of them do their harmony thing yeah. a couple times, but you know, that you actually really hear it clearly <laughs> before you. Thank you for listening and reading the lyrics and all of that. I so appreciate your attention. Let's stop for some sponsor talk. Interviewing is a skill and no matter what field you express this art within, the topic becomes interesting and often fascinating within the hands of an interviewer who asks questions with honesty, compassion, enthusiasm, and preparedness. Jughead's Basement explores underground music, art, and comedy specializing in performers who have made a living in or have been influenced by the philosophy and lifestyle of punk music through the decades. The host, John Jughead Pearson, was the founder of the legendary and highly influential punk band known as Screeching Weasel. He's been a guest on this podcast, Nakedly Examined Music. I've been on Jughead's Basement. His band is openly quoted by bands such as Green Day, Blink-182, and Rise Against as being a main inspiration in their own pursuits in music. Jughead has taken his 35 years of experience and knowledge and applied it to digging deep into the careers, beliefs, and contradictions of his guests' public and private lives. He nudges politely, not aggressively, and gets at the foundations of what makes someone an artist and what makes them question the legitimacy of even that claim. Every week, he brings you new interviews with underground influential performers, both contemporary and classic. Visit Jughead's Basement at Jughead'sBasementPodcast.com. Let's talk about showering. I'm just getting over a bout of COVID and with my raw, scratchy throat standing in the shower, specifically standing in this Nebbia by Moen Quattro shower with its drenching, misty experience has been the high point of the day, a source of great relief in a dry-throated time. The Nebbia by Moen Quattro showerhead is an innovation by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water with a mere three-minute installation that's as easy as changing a light bulb. You can upgrade your showering experience and save 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower. It's the holidays. It is a perfect time for making the life of a loved one or yourself a little bit better. This Nebbia by Moen Showerhead is available in five beautiful finishes to match your bathroom, and they offer other sustainable bathroom accessories such as their new quick-dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. So a great time to upgrade your bathroom 
And a great time to save the planet. Nebia and Moen have the joint goal to save 1 billion gallons of water by 2023. You can be a part of it. Nebia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebia.com. Nebia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M. Use the code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebia products. Again, go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. Let's get the second song out there. Exit at 63 from Airless Midnight, your previous album back in 2015. Can you say a little about where you were at at this point with this album and this song? This whole album was, I would say, quite inspired by my father's illness and demise and eventual passing especially his passing. And I think that was kind of in the background informing a lot of the material on this album and nowhere more so probably than on that song. And that was fresh relatively at the time? That was Well, when I wrote, when I first started, it was, he actually died in 2007, but this was my first album. And after a long stretch, I was raising a kid and then going through a, a divorce. It was a very tumultuous time. And I was a full-time mother. So I was working on the song probably in the immediate aftermath, but it took me a while to actually make the record and record it and all that. Now it's me. Our memory. Now it's me. 
Echo through the hall. He shuffles downstairs at a quarter to three. He checks his pockets and exits the building. Yes, he exits the scene. At So another pretty minimalist arrangement. In fact, there's a live version on the internet with Chris Cochran on guitar. Is he actually playing on this recording too? No, I don't think so. I was thinking it was a different guitarist because he even makes it simpler. <laughs> that here we have the boom, 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 boom. You know, we have the arpeggio throughout and he just plays a boom, clack, boom. So that's even more room for the vocals. That seems like the more exposed, the better. And this again is over five minutes and doesn't have the catchy drums and things that are in the previous ones. This is like the films of Jim Jarmusch, the <laughs> slow burn <laughs> that lets you really sink into this feeling of decay. Yeah, can you say a little about your choice in setting up this atmosphere to show this poem that evidently was sticking around, you know, for almost a decade or something before this? Or Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't sticking around for a decade because I be clear that I've known to tinker on songs for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So I probably tinkered on this one for a couple of years before I considered it semi-finished. And then we probably recorded it a couple of years before it came out. So anyway, yeah, it was funny. I did the demo of this with that arpeggiated guitar 
And I really tinkered on this song because I felt like lyrically, I just felt like I had something. I hate to sound like I get precious about my songs, but I guess I've been guilty of doing that. So I just wanted to get it right. And I ended up with this demo that was me doing what I thought in my mind was a really terrible 100th rate imitation of like something that Mark Rebo might do. And so I asked him to play it on the record. And to my surprise, he actually kept listening to the demo and tried to then kind of replicate what I did on the demo. Okay. that's It didn't jump out as his style necessarily, but he's also doing those slimy string scrapey lead parts. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. I think he does all that stuff and the weird back noise stuff. But yeah, so that's how that came about. And it is a slow burn. I think this one is so much about the lyrics. You know, there's a melody there too. And then I wanted to have Sam Phillips do harmonies on it, which I think really adds a lot. I think she's just wonderful. And I'm so grateful that she was willing to do that. But in terms of talking about the song's content, I mean, I'd be curious about what other people's read on it is before I say what inspired it. Because it's always almost more interesting to songwriters, I think, to hear how it comes across. I didn't know this was a personal story, but, you know, in terms of the setting up an atmosphere to talk about mental dissolution, you know, it actually took me a while before I figured out, you know, there's actually no place where he physically leaves the building. It is just the death. I thought for some reason where he's looking for his keys and, that, you know, that there's some sort of actual movement in the song. But no, he's just pacing around his apartment going crazy. You read it right the first time, I think. And you're absolutely right. It's about a mental dissolution. But I just realized when I wrote it that it doesn't have to be about my dad and it doesn't even have to be necessarily about dementia or about dying. It can be about being lonely. It can be about going crazy. It can be about growing old and the fear of that. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is just about the shrinking mental world. That's a really sad song. I'm sorry. But it's also, there's love in there, and I think that makes it okay, in a way. Well, and there's a line, the most true he's ever been, right? The thing that kicks off the chorus. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting take. I just done, for one of my other podcasts, we read Erasmus, The Praise of Folly, where he's talking about infants, stupidity, like, these are great things. And then when we get old, we become like infants again, and that's very jolly, you know, (laughs) compared to the the troubles that we beset ourselves with. So there's, you know, there's an upside to losing your mind, I guess. Yeah, it's like there is no more crafty strategizing in a way beyond like what you need to do to just survive, like Mm -hmm. pacing or leaving at 3 a.m. every night and come back, you know, whatever it is that you do. Tickled to hear that it's Sam Phillips, who's been on this show doing these these, these ooh harmonies. But was that sort of get her in to just do whatever you want, try some stuff? Or were you sort of working, singing with her and directing her? She lives in LA and I live in New York and we were recording. So I just sent her the stuff and I pretty much said, do whatever you want on the choruses and give me some ooze at the end. So she harmonized on the courses, which was no easy feat because my phrasing is all over the place and it's not necessarily uh, very steady, but I just always loved her. I'm so glad you had her too on this show. That's cool the choice in mixing. So you got Mark Rebo putting on all these very interesting things, but he's sort of made subliminal, like just shoved into a line of something, a texture 
Was that his intention? Was that your intention? <laughs> I think it was a case of, of demo-itis. You know, I did do, work on this demo a lot on my own. And I think a lot of people got attached, not just me. Like, I mean, it's the artist usually that gets accused of getting demo-itis. But like I said, when Mark heard it, he was like, oh, well, let me just try to kind of get this vibe. And at one point, you know, my producer, J.D. Foster, even said, well, you should you should play this. You know, so there was a little bit of just, I guess the demo had a vibe, very minimal. And it was me just doing that arpeggiated guitar singing and doing that melodica in the chorus. Is it even a melodica on the recording? I can't remember because I always do it on melodica. And Either a melodica or a harmonica that peaks out just for a little solo. Yeah. Like to repeat one riff a couple times and then goes away. Like that's an interesting approach to a solo to have some atmosphere a riff and then more atmosphere and then we're back to the song that's kind of my so you've just introduced <laughs> your audience to my solo style my definition of a solo <laughs> sure you don't need something to distract unless the whole point of the band is to be a partnership with a lead player or something yeah so i think with that song everybody just kind of liked the demo a lot that i made and everybody was kind of like Let's not stray too far from this vibe. Any thought about constructing the narrative? You know, it's really, it's a single glimpse. There's not like he gets worse through the song or something. Uh, in fact, you go repeat the first lines in the last verse. Do you recall at this, Did you? is there a version with three extra verses? Was the <laughs> things? No, it's funny. I may not have been totally conscious of this, but the glimpse that I'm describing here is repeat repeat, repeat, like somebody who's done the same thing every day again and again, and there's no more participation in in a forward motion. And that's the really tragic thing. And I think that's why I say at the end, he exits the scene. Like there's, I mean, interpreted so many ways. He exits the building. He exits that glimpse of what we're looking at as a movie. I'm a very sort of visual, I think you probably noticed all my lyrics are a little bit like watching a little short film or something. So there's a visual component. But he exits the scene can mean go moving towards death, obviously, but it also means just like everything is circular, just pacing, repeating the same thing every day. My work for the day is, and then people can draw their own parallels, metaphors out of that. Some of that do that our whole lives, right? Some of us do that our whole lives. It is a glimpse of a very circular existence. Well, I do at least like the fact that, like, on his work for the day is done, that you introduce a new chord. City lights flicker, one and one, his work for the day is done. You know, it could have just been those same two chords. That go over and over and over again. But then by the third line, okay, let's, let's change it a little bit. And then we have this nice resolution that just takes us back to the verse right after that. So even though ultimately it's circular, there's at least some movement in the circle. It's not, you know, you could have put a drone on this. There could have been, this could be a velvet underground 11 minute long, uh, <laughs> Now you're making me self-conscious that my songs are really boring. No, 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 no. I like that this was one of the three because the first one, even though, you know, it's still minimalist, but eventually, you know, the bass comes in. You got a couple layers with the first day, you know, and it ends up being a more traditional pop song because it has that hook. 
Whereas this one, it has the nice moments of resolution like that. The day is done, but it's not going to give you like, here's the hook. Like, that's not part of this. This is a more meditative enterprise. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny that I didn't think about this, but that we picked those two or I picked those two because they're both a little glimpse of observing my dad in a way, in a very different context. Well, let's get the third song out there, which is shorter. It's three and a half minutes, almost gone from your first album, Flickr, 1998, also on the lovely and amazing soundtrack. But this also, it's kind of slow. It's another walking song, but a very different tone. I think it's an interesting contrast with the other ones. Can you say a little bit before we hear it? Yeah. So Almost Gone is off my first record, Flickr, which I was so... I would say insecure at that time with that record. I was so anxious. You know, we're always anxious about everything we produce, but it's almost a bad memory to me thinking back on making that record and how anxious I was because it was, I felt like there was so much at stake for me to have to prove myself as a songwriter, especially having had a little bit of recognition in my life in the past as an actor. So because of that anxiety, There are not all that many songs on that first record that I can kind of tolerate, which is why it's hard for me to revisit that record. But this is one of maybe two or three, even though I think there's some very cool production, some fun lyrics and some fun ideas on that first record. But when I hear songs from it and when I hear especially my vocals on that first record, I'm just like, I don't want to go back there to that super heightened anxiety state. But this song is another dissolution song. Dissolution of a relationship is how I look at it, which is a very classic material for a billion songs uh, since the dawn of time. And this one has, to me, a little bit of a hinto country. (laughs) Hinto. And again, it's really sparse. It's trying to capture that feeling of a lot going on internally, but Externally, you're just walking. It's peaceful. No one is saying anything, but there is a whole like war underneath what's being said. So just trying to capture that feeling. To swinging from a tree hits you on the But 
So I can totally see this fitting on a soundtrack from this time. I'm not remembering sort of what the, I don't want to use the word twee, but a lot of soundtracks that had this sort of indie folk feel in the early aughts, you know, we're getting toward that. Indie folk feel is is like, yeah, I, I was definitely into that sound and I'm at home with that sound, I would say still to some extent today. Sure. And it's just such a nice sort of lullaby feel, but interesting choice of instruments. I mean, it's it's mostly just still the one guitar chugging along. You're actually playing it this one, I assume. I think I am. I think Richard Buckner might have played too. This was a long time ago, but I think I am, yeah. But then, you know, you've got this, what is it? Sounds like an upright bass put through fuzz or is that just like, you know, this? Yeah, that that is probably an upright bass put through fuzz. You know, J.D. Foster who was the producer on this one as well, always has like really great creative ideas like that. I could totally see him doing that. He played bass on this. So it is put through something. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, let me just, I'm going to pick out a little bit to put in the big fat instrumental. I'll play a little bit of. you got your big fuzz guitar, but then like little banjo plinkings over it. Like that's a cool idea. I think it's become a superstition for me. I have to have banjo on all my records at <laughs> least for a second. Like, and I remember only remember that at the very last minute for this latest record, but we managed to get it in there. It still sounds like maybe the drums are being played with brushes. Given that it's how huge, like you could very easily boom, boom, pow, like amp it up. But like, no, 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 let's just add some more grunge, kind of like in the previous song with Mark Ribot doing his little. Yes. And I think that is a very consistent aesthetic for me. And that was obviously very favored in that era. But again, that state is just always mixing the beautiful with a little ugly. I just always have to do that. You know, I love a pretty melody. I really do. But then I need to kind of come in there and do something a little bit punk rock, right? Throw a little splatter on there. So, But by keeping it, the drum still fairly, like I think it's still using brushes. It is not like doing the full-on Lydia Lunch, I'm singing as a punk rocker in front of a loud band. It's a little more blues based or, you know. Yes, because maybe, as you said, I'm such a lyrically driven writer. Sometimes I will favor even in the big sounds like you can't lose. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe if I recorded that song today, I would put a big set of drums on it. This was my first record and I was pretty inexperienced. I had a lot of ideas, but it was really a lot of JD's decisions and ideas, too, that made it. So I think I just said I wanted to get something ugly going in the middle and he might have decided let's not get too big, but let's bring in some nasty fuzz bass or something. I mean, for any of these projects, I know not the most recent one, was there a live band prior to putting the album together? For this record was maybe the closest to that because I had been playing these songs, rehearsing them for a show got canceled in the pandemic. 
but we had been in a room sort of rehearsing these songs. And while we didn't exactly record it with the live band because there was a pandemic and it was a very complicated process to record the album, but a lot of the people on the record are with some additional people brought in for the recording, but a lot of them are the people who were already playing these songs. So in some form, that is the most true for this record. For the previous records, I worked with many of the musicians that are on the records, but there wasn't a live band that was like rehearsed and playing these songs a lot. Well, and the production touches on here makes it like with the first song, I understand that in the musical, there's a band on stage playing. You can see them all. And then they'll even have some lines. There'll be characters in the play. Whereas, you know, I even worked with a guitarist at some point. He was like, the best way to arrange something is you should be able to clearly hear what every single instrumentalist is doing and they should each have a clear role which is is very much against my own aesthetic of but i want to add maracas over two bars near the end i want to bring in a sample of grinding gears and you know i, I want to add little things that would not be five guys on stage and you know at least in this early song than the jd foster stuff there's a little more of that of course, we can do guitar overdubs. Of course, we can, do, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, that you're picturing there's a lead guitarist and there's a rhythm guitarist and there's a bassist and a drummer and they're standing there and you can picture them as a band. As a band. I mean, it's a funny thing that you're bringing that up because I really, on one hand, super appreciate the feel when a band has played together a lot and there is that live feel. But on the other hand, bring on the maracas for <laughs> Christ's sakes. And when I bring them in, they're usually the loudest thing on the track, if you notice. That's another consistent... So, like, yeah, I think it's the best of both worlds, ideally, sometimes, but... Can we get back a little to the literature of Almost Gone here? You know, you're setting up, again, it's another walking song in which nothing needs to be said, but obviously with a different emotional impact than this actually being a good thing, walking around with your dad and not having to maybe deal with interpersonal relationships. But here it's, can we even stand each other's sight? Can you say a little about the putting together of this story? I mean, first of all, this was so early on in my writing. Maybe there's like a little bit of clunkiness in the way this one is written. But I, I think the place where it comes from is still very much part of my aesthetic. I'm such a, like feeling person, but I hate to talk about feelings. So I like to kind of capture in an almost reportage way, the texture of the feeling. That's kind of what I go for. And this was definitely like so many love songs or broken heart songs inspired probably by some uneasy feeling memory of those parts of a relationship where you're contemplating its end. And it's heartbreak, you know, but you can't really talk about it yet, or you're not really sure. So I was just trying to put that into a song. And I don't know that I can say anything more revelatory about that. Well, that's interesting that you're you're saying what you're, you know, that you don't like in lyrics to talk about feelings, because it could easily have been, you know, feeling the knot of the stone in my stomach or whatever, you know, but instead it's, there's some wondering, there's some uh, actions of the mind, but it's not sort of a phenomenological description of and the panic is setting in or, you know, what, whatever. Yeah, or I'm, I'm so sad or, yeah, you know. Yes, <laughs> of course, it would be some more subtle way of saying it than that. But sadness creeping through, you know, some you could throw that word in there. Quiet makes me sway. Is that I was just writing these down from listening. Yeah, to the quiet makes me sway. Yeah. You know, sometimes it takes me a few years or decades to figure out what I was trying to say. <laughs> but the quiet makes me sway is like, 
I mean, I just like the image, but. I think that it's disorienting. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's uneasy. There is a silence. There is a breakdown of communication. Maybe there's stonewalling. You know, that's what they call it now. Maybe there is an inability to express. There is disconnection. You know, that a lot of my songs are about that, actually, which and that that makes you not steady and not grounded and not safe and not standing still. I think that's what I was trying to say there. Well, it's always nice at the very beginning of the song to put out a mundane detail to set the stage and you have the wearing brand new clothes. But before that, the shoe swinging from a tree hits you on the head. Was that something literally that you had happened that such that you would come up with that detail? That's a very weird mundane <laughs> i'm doing the air quotes around mundane well, a shoe swinging from a tree is is stuff we've seen right uh well usually it's a telephone yeah fire. it's usually it's much higher than would hit when you in the head yeah <laughs> you just take it down if it's just <laughs> yeah maybe i, I might have seen as i might have been you know walking down this to me brings it right into new york too because do you see swinging shoes in other cities or is it just not in madison wisconsin no i don't recall seeing any swinging shoes but you have heard that you can see them in new york right or in weird rural areas i i don't know some and only certain parts of new york and also you don't see them anymore in new york this is old school this is og new york imagery and like probably way on the east side but yes, usually they would be over a telephone wire, much higher up. So I think I did see like maybe a converse thrown up that somebody threw up on a telephone wire, but it accidentally landed on a tree branch instead. That was probably what inspired that line. And I just like to have like mundane details, but also like with a hint of surrealism in it. And your love of, we haven't talked about of, I don't know if it's steel guitar or just using a volume pedal on guitar, but some sort of string pad like effect of you know that that's all over this song uh and i think in maybe at least number t- the second one yeah definitely definitely a lot of it i wonder what song did did we throw in there from oh we didn't have to pick from every album because i was like oh there's nothing in there from my second album that's much. okay I mean, most that's most right. folks give less shrift to more parts of their uh careers that you were it was easy to focus in this one I need to throw in, I want to play another clip from two minutes in at the end of the bridge, I guess. So we throw in this little, like, as if her satanic majesty's request or, you know, some sort of psychedelic thing has come in for two lines before we get back. Do you remember what, what are you even saying there? Sit on a rainbow by men on a curb, something? No, it says fell off a rainbow and hit my head on the curb. Was your voice slightly sped up there? There's some, some weird trickery going on there. There's some very weird crack on my voice. I will not defend it. I will say that that is probably not an effect I would go for now today. And I think that was something me and JD came up with because we couldn't find the right it's possible that i just couldn't find the right way to sing it and so we put something on there artificially that it's not my favorite part of the song let's just put it that way i do like that fast pedal i like that break and i even like the idea that i have a slight bit different personality there Mm -hmm. but that effect to me is now i find it a little distracting 
Yeah, because the whole rest of the song is, you know, that indie folk thing I was talking about is sort of dependent on pretty much no reverb on the voice. We're right up there in, you know, so intimate. And here we have, well, I guess in introducing your giant blast, you know, already is violating that, is going more into the Daniel Lanois, 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 you know, the soundtracks that he does like for Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man movies, just you know, two hours of washed guitar or, or you know. Well, that was I, actually Neil Young. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm thinking of uh, Sling Blade. Oh, okay. <laughs> where, okay. You know, but it's the similar effect in both of these where you have. So anyway, we've entered this realm of Western psychedelia or something for this little bit so that you're doing this something to get you back, you know, to provide a contrast so that the original voice can come back in. Yeah, I think that was it. It was like we hadn't quite figured out the transition. That's exactly right. Yeah, because this then leads back into the regular mood of the song. All right, and then let's just play the end. We haven't talked about how you end the songs yet. So we just repeat the the phrasing a little bit, and then the guitar even keeps going a little bit just to you know have a little amen sort of moment after after the do you recall anything about or, or have any reflections on the way of ending that that way as opposed to like just ending on your last note or something like that? I don't remember that from a production sense from a songwriting sense, if you mean that way, I know there's like a little curly cue ending, mm-hmm. and actually that is a thing I do here and there. Like I add on a little tag ending. I did that also in, in the other song we played, Exit at 63. A very similar thing that I didn't realize that I tend to do that. Not It's not like I always do it, but on some ballads it works. But production-wise, I have no recollection of what happened there. But I think it was really just stripping down to a very intimate... I mean, I hear that now that you played it back. It's really just the voice and the guitar, right? It's hard to tell. The whole thing has this amp noise <laughs> that's going through the whole thing, which is a, you know, a strange but like kind of intimate effect of just let's leave, you know, going through the whole song. Like it sounds intentional. Yeah, it wasn't. We did a lot of that kind of stuff on this record that I haven't done as much of. I definitely haven't indulged in that much sort of fuckery on other records. But like this record was a lot about that because it was a kind of exciting time. If you recall, a lot of people were doing fun stuff. So maybe it's a little dated in that way, but there was a lot of fun playing with effects, playing stuff through tiny little speakers and then remiking that and re-recording it. Just the spiritual expression is fucking things up kind of ethos was really big in that time. And and I wasn't just trying to be trendy, but I, I that appealed to my sensibility. I always liked that having something kind of pretty and then having something a little distressing or disturbing in the middle of it. So we really went all out with playing with stuff like that on this record. I don't know if there's been a single keyboard on anything that we picked today. I know, you know, you've got piano on other things. Is that sort of part of the aesthetic is guitar sound? If we're going to do a pad, it should be violin or guitar or something that is natural, you know, sounding and not synth strings or whatever. Yes, synth sounds I don't like very much and I don't gravitate towards. So there's very little of that you'll find in any of my stuff. But keyboards, there's definitely some. I love piano, but I also 
throwing the melodica in there, you mentioned. Melodica, Rhodes, Wurlitzer, Hammond on the recent record. So there's definitely some keyboard stuff. But okay, I'll up my keyboard game for the next record. <laughs> okay, we have to make the decision now. What is the What song are we going to send people out on? Let's pick the song Freaks. From the new album, I Hate Memory. Do you want to say a few words about it before we let you go? It's fun. It's about the good times and bad times. But it's really, uh, again, like I was saying before, I try to capture a mood and a flavor. And this song is just trying to describe the mood and flavor and danger and fun of being, I don't know, 15 and hitting the clubs in downtown New York. All right. Well, this was very fun. I hope I, do you know, is the the musical going to be filmed eventually or something? Is there a way for people not in New York to see this? I would love to actually make a movie of this musical. So that's one thing. Our next show is at Joe's Pub on January 19th. So if you're listening and you're in New York, come. And if you're a film person, come extra. And I will also be traveling, I think, with this show or maybe a stripped down version of it. So. You're in Wisconsin. Yes, yes. People generally jump straight from Minneapolis to Chicago and don't even stop in Milwaukee, but that's fine. Oh, man. (laughs) We'll find you. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to talk to you. And here it is, Freaks.
a brat and dance to beat on the brat. And I want your love back to back. We could dish it out, then dash off to play with someone who'd be called a sicko today. Lay it down, spit it out. Thanks so much to Esther. A lot of fun to talk to there. Remember, you can learn more about her music at estherbalint.com. I'm hoping if you're hearing this on the Partially Examined Life feed or somewhere else like that, that you will actually go to the Nakedly Examined Music feed and subscribe directly to that. You can find the links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or just look up Nakedly Examined Music on Apple Podcasts or wherever. Again, I always appreciate your support. You can do that at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Or if you're using Apple Podcasts, just click the button to subscribe to the paid feed. My upcoming interviews are with uh, Pat Irwin. He's done a lot of soundtrack work. He's been in the B-52s, other stuff. And then I just talked to Claire Hamill, a sort of Joni Mitchell-ish singer-songwriter whose work goes all the way back to the early 70s. She's got some folky stuff, some pop stuff, some dance stuff. And she's interacted with the Prague community a lot, played on a Steve Howe album, was a member of Wishbone Ash for a little bit. So a very interesting woman. Hope you come back for that. Feel free to reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com to suggest guests or provide other feedback on the show. Hope you're having a great holiday season. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Um.